Hello and welcome to Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters. So glad you could join me for episode 24 of the podcast. And it is me flying solo again today. Got some great questions from listeners. And I'm going to play with the format a little bit of this uh, of this podcast. I think, you know, just because of certain things in my work life changing a little bit, it's not always going to be easy for me to record with guests. So I'm going to try and kind of taper these podcasts where you get Q&A episodes, you get guest episodes. I already have a guest lined up for next week, so we'll be back to normal. So it just seems a little bit easier for me to, to kind of plan things out if we have this. And and I'll tell you what, the, the Q&A episodes tend to do really well as well. So you guys seem to enjoy them. And that's one of the other reasons why I will continue to do it because I really enjoy interacting with the the listeners of this show. Um, I, I think at some point it'd be nice to get a bit of an audio element. I may have you guys start sending me uh, voice memos and things like that and email uh, just so we can try and include some of that on the podcast. And then all of a sudden I'm making more editing work for me because as you may not know, this is all just kind of me doing this on my own. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're trying to get there, but uh, got a lot to get to before we get to the Q&A. And I wanted to get kind of give you guys a little bit of an update on my current situation, because if you've been uh, following me on Twitter, if you've seen the news, um, you know that I have uh, taken on another job. Um, and uh, it's one of several that I have at the moment, uh, but very excited to have joined dailyfaceoff.com. Uh, the the team that Frank Saravalli has been building over there with some people I really like and respect in the in the game like Mike McKenna former goaltender uh, Steve Greeley who I think is one of the great minds uh, uh, in hockey and 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 uh, you know former assistant GM and and a guy that's been around the game for a long time uh, Scott Burnside I mean a legendary writer a guy that I grew up reading uh, when he was over at ESPN and and. Um, you know, there, there are others as well, Bryce Salvador, Tim Peel, Rachel Dory. I mean, there are all, all sorts of people that are involved with the website that I, that I really, uh, uh, I mean, excited to work with. And so I will be doing prospect coverage for daily Faceoff. I will still have the hockey sense sub stack as well. Um, so in the end, you're going to get more content. The nice thing about daily Faceoff is, you know, we are going to be mainstream prospect coverage with no paywall. So it's free to you to read. Um, it is the first time I have been outside of the paywall on a prospect basis since I did my old US, United States of Hockey blog. And certainly I did some prospect work at CBS Sports as well, but that was more NHL coverage. So um, the thing is, is prospect coverage is 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 difficult, but this is going to be free for you to, to get access to. So if you are a subscriber to the Hockey Sense Substack, I hope you'll continue to subscribe because I'll be covering prospects more on a national big picture basis for uh, daily face-off on Hockey Sense. It's going to continue to be very specific, nuanced coverage. I have a post up right now from my recent trip to Duluth, Minnesota, where I review tons of prospects from the, the icebreaker tournament. So when I go on the road, I want to make sure that you guys are going along on the road with me, seeing what I see, understanding that, and all of that kind of goes into the process of, of me putting together these, these notes on prospects and, and building out, you know, prospect rankings and all those other things. And, and so, you know, at the, at the icebreaker, there obviously was the University of Michigan, which has all their top prospects. I have a big story at Daily Faceoff with a primary focus on Michigan, but then over on Hockey Sense, you get Minnesota Duluth, Providence, Minnesota State. I also have a power ranking there. So uh, there's a lot of different places. Also, um, just to remind you, over at Betway.com, or Betway Insider, rather, um, I have uh, NHL picks. I, I'm writing there three times a week as well. So you'll get uh, Thursday picks from me, Saturday picks from me, and also I'll, I'll usually do Saturday player props. So it's kind of a fun way to stay engaged with the NHL, uh, but you could find that at Betway Insider. If you are in Canada, I believe they are now available um, uh, there. So uh, certainly something to uh, something to keep an eye on uh, there because it's more work for me. And, and I cannot thank Frank enough for bringing me onto the team. I can't thank Betway enough for, for giving me this work because – you know, it's allowing me to take more chances. It'll it should allow me to have you know the finances to travel a little bit more as well and get out to important events that I think I want you know to give you guys a comprehensive look at. We'll still have this podcast right here. It is as always free. Um, there's a chance there might be a couple of tiny tweaks to it in the coming weeks, but aside from that, this is you know gonna continue to be something that I 
produced regularly because I really enjoy doing it. And it's been a lot of fun to connect with you guys. Uh, and, and I think that you, your response has, has made me want to do it even more. So that is kind of what's happening right now. So yes, if you still want to help support the work that I do, um, Hockey Sense will continue to be a paid Substack. Um, so that is at hockeysense.substack.com. It's $6 a month, $54 for the annual. So you save three months off of that. Um, there will be a little bit of a, an adjustment period here for me because I am trying to figure out exactly how to make it work. Um, where, you know, I'm writing quite a bit for daily face off. I'm writing for, for hockey sense. I'm writing for Betway. I'm trying to record a podcast. Um, and also, uh, I got another job. I, I'm going to be doing color commentary for the new ECHL team in Coralville, Iowa, called the Iowa Heartlanders. They are the ECHL affiliate of the Minnesota Wild, and I am super pumped to do that with my buddy David Fine, uh, who is their play-by-play broadcaster and has, has uh, you know had a had a good career in broadcasting, going through the US, USHL and the ECHL, and a, and a guy on the rise. So really excited to to hitch my wagons to him and 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 do some. Uh, color commentary because uh, getting in a rink is, is a lot of fun. Um, so certainly, if you are somebody that that follows the ECHL closely, please do check out our broadcasts. Um, you know, you can check them out on on Flow Hockey, and, and also if you are in Iowa, we'll be we have about eight or nine games on MediaCom Connections channel, so uh, we'll have some TV games for you as well. So really, really thrilled to get back into the broadcast booth. Um, it is one of my favorite things to do and really thankful for the Iowa Heartlanders for giving me that opportunity to do it. So a lot going on, but we're going to keep having a lot of fun. And I got some phenomenal questions from readers uh, when I put out the call on uh, Twitter, and and I hope that uh, you guys will enjoy them. Some of them are, are things that we've covered before, but I want to try and bring a little bit more context to those as well. And yeah, we're going to get started with that right here, right now as we get our Q&A portion on episode 24 of Talking Nonsense. All right, let's answer some questions. And I'm really thankful for the questions that I got because they are really good ones um, from colleagues and listeners and all kinds of people. And uh, I, I got one that is going to take up some time because we really got to dive into this one. I love this question from my good friend, John Mattis over at the score who asks, can you rank the best leagues in the world for developing NHL players? Also your favorite junior and college programs development and in terms of development practices, who's forward thinking or simply has a strong grasp of how to produce everyday NHLers. All right. Great question. And it's, it's not easy to answer because I think that everything kind of goes in cycles. You'll see years where you get, you know, like recently we've had many German players come through uh and and you know is that part of a cycle we actually have a question about that later which i'll get to in more detail but you know you look at and sometimes there are going to be up years for the ushl down years for the q up years for the ohl down years for the o like you know there are i think the the central scouting rankings came out and there are only two a-rated players in the ohl this season um and and maybe that's part of the pandemic and, and we'll talk about that later as well but those are are things that happen but when it comes to consistency and when it comes to developing complete hockey players, I think that there are two countries in particular that get it absolutely right. And they do it because, one, the cultural um, sporting life, you know, like the, the way that sports are handled culturally in these countries is much different than how we handle sport in the U.S. and Canada. And I'm going to, essentially, I'm beating around the bush, but I'm talking about Sweden and Finland. And you look at, those are those are countries with small populations, with a much smaller number of hockey players, yet with a high, le- a high percentage of those players becoming elite level players. Players that can play in the NHL, players that are going to play high college hockey, players that are going to play professionally in Europe, um, they produce a higher volume of players per capita than the U.S. and Canada do. And they do that because part of it is the, the, the club system and getting players at a younger age to play within the same system. They go up the ranks and often it's 
you know, for most kids, it's going to be the, the club that's nearest to their family. Sometimes there are, you know, trades and, and transfers and all these other things that happen. And that allows players to go outside of that. But most often, it's going to be the club that's nearby. You look at Moto over the years and all the players that they had, you know, Victor Hedman being kind of the most recent example of, of super high-end players, you know, and William Nylander's in that mix as well. And, you know, Peter Forsberg, if you want to go way back. And so, you know, that's part of it and, and and having that culture of development and of progression and of you know there is an end goal in sight and now for a lot of those players that end goal is the nhl for the club it's to get them to their pro team uh, but everything they do kind of moves that forward so you look at the the clubs in sweden and finland and you look at you know clubs like Frölunda and moto you know for a time it's 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 not the you know the club that it once was being in the second division and things like that, but, you know, Jew Garden and all these different places where, you know, development is a priority. And, and I think that they have philosophies there that are player-centered that are, you know, allowing them to progress. So you look at those and that's, that's to me, you know, that, that, that's putting the whole system. It's not a specific league. You can't say the SHL is the best at developing players because, you know, you look at a guy like Lucas Raymond who developed just fine, but he was playing, you know, a minute, 30 seconds a night as a pro player. That's not necessarily the best development situation for him, but it was what the club kind of had and it was where he is. And now he's in the NHL and he's doing just fine. Um, you know, so you also look at the Finnish system and, and, and the, I think there's been a shift in Finland's development philosophies over the last few years. And if you've never read it, um, please go read at The Athletic, Sanaya Sapergi's Grassroots to Gold series. It is some of the best writing that I've seen on development. She covers multiple nations. Uh, there's a really interesting story in there about Denmark and how they ascended to the top level of the world juniors and the men's senior. And I, I think that that is such a great uh, piece of coverage of, of what has happened internationally. So you look at Finland and how they develop players and it's just the, the whole philosophy is different, but now they have said we need to get more skilled players. You know, you look at Tebu Teravainen and, and, and um, Sebastian Aho and Patrick Laine, those guys are beneficiaries of that shift because Finnish national teams over the years have always been defensively sound. They're one of the most difficult teams to play against. They play very disciplined within a team system, but Finland as a country started focusing a little bit more on the individual and developing individual skills so that because they knew that if everybody played the same way, then you're not going to have a very good team. You're not going to have a chance. And you look at what has happened over those years. Finland has won gold medals at the World Junior Championship. They are one of the most consistently good international teams at every level um, because they still play their system, but now they're developing those star players. And it's not like they didn't have them before. Obviously, Timo Solani, there were, there were exceptions to the rule, but by and large, the Finnish player was a hardworking, you know, battler, two-way player, gritty now there's a lot more of that high-end skill. So that's that's something that's happened there. I can't, you know, so that's why I want you to go read these because it's hard for me to, in a podcast, to kind of get into the weeds on, on how they develop things. And I, I'll hopefully have some people from Sweden and Finland on the podcast to talk about some of the development philosophies because there are some, so many great um, people out there. And, and USA Hockey has been bringing Finnish coaches into their coaching clinics to say, teach us, tell us what we need to do. How do you do it? Um, you know, there are certainly places like in Russia where there's such a focus on skating before playing and, and you know, there, there's, there's, you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're getting the skating elements down before you pick up a hockey stick. So those are the things that I think are, are important for development. But then, you, you know, if you look at it in terms of sheer numbers, obviously the, the province of Ontario has had great success at developing a high level of players. It's a you know large population, but it's also you know, they have things like the GTHL where there's a place for the elite player to get elite training at a younger age. Um, and so that helps. So I'd say that the OHL system and pyramid is very good for development. It's not always the ideal situation for every single player, which is why you see some players go the college route or something like that. But it has been very effective at creating NHL players. And I think the one thing that the OHL has going for it is, is but usually in a given year, you are going to have more elite players at the junior level in that league than you're going to have almost anywhere else where they're all playing against each other. And I know that we, 
you know, I'm not a huge fan of the NHL CHL agreement. I think if a player needs to, you know, it's not player player focused enough for me on an individual basis where, you know, players should have the ability to go to the AHL if they're ready. Um, but the reason that that agreement exists is so that in the OHL, QMJHL and WHL, that their best players are staying in the league longer because it makes everybody else better. Playing against elite level talent with and against elite level talent is something that helps players progress. And so that's why that rule exists. Well, I mean, it also exists because, you know, OHL owners want to make sure that they can sell tickets too. But it, there is a developmental aspect and a reason the NHL is not going to be doing favors out of the goodness of their own heart. They want to make sure that their product is the best. So, that's why that I, I think that from that development standpoint, that is the NHL's motivation for having that agreement in place. You know, when I, as I look and, and I think the NCAA pyramid and the American development model at this point has supercharged development in the United States. And it has gotten better. We're getting better players. I think we are entering a new golden generation of American player with Austin Matthews and Jack and Quinn Hughes and, and Luke Hughes, and, you know, like, uh, um, and certainly with, with the, the high end talent that we're creating now, like, you know, Patrick Kane was kind of a diamond. He, he was, he was a diamond in the rough because there weren't that many American players that played like him. Now he has created a generation of players that want to play like him. Like Jack Hughes is a, is kind of a direct descendant of Patrick Kane in terms of how he plays and how he's going to impact games. Um, you know, and then I think that guys like Adam Fox and Quinn Hughes are going to create a new generation of American defensemen as well. Um, you know, with them coming up through the ranks. So I think that we're going to see more there. So the American development model, for those that don't know, really started about 2010 where, where the U S started focusing more on, um, you know, uh, long-term athlete development, but also with the focus of, you know, it has a multi-pronged approach and it's, it's emphasis on fun, emphasis on kids playing multiple sports, creating better athletes and better people, those types of things. And then making sure that players are, are not, you know, are, are, are ascending properly. They're getting good coaching. They're getting all those things that they need. Um, you know, they shrink the ice at the younger levels playing half ice and cross ice, which I'm now a youth hockey coach in Cedar Rapids. And I got to tell you the cross ice, uh, games as a, as a coach is so much more valuable to see players. They're getting more touches on the puck. They're getting more opportunities to have to make plays in tight spaces. They it's the, the best skaters can't simply go wide on everybody. And then, you know, the, the one kid that can lift the puck and shoot it over the goalie, you know, like it, it, it's, we're, we're moving away from that and it's getting so much better. And as a result, the USHL has gotten better. The NTDP players have gotten better. The NCAA players are, have gotten a lot better as well. And so it helps everything. And I think that, you know, that 2001 birth year where we saw so many American players go in the first round, that was the first class that I think you could say played almost their entire hockey careers under the American development model. Um, you know, so that, that came in like when they were about nine years old. So when they're still at a very impressionable age and now they're starting to get that level of training. So it, it's, it's, it, it works and it's working better. And I think, you know, this isn't to slight the WHL or the QMJHL. You know, I think that they all have great models as well and they're getting elite players. Um, you know, the USHL is part of that NCAA pyramid. So I kind of include them with that. And then, you know, the, the one place where I would like to see some improvement, um, it, and certainly the players are good enough, but I think in Russia, the young players um, are starting to get suffocated a little bit. And I'm looking at, you know, a guy like Matvey Michkov, who's kind of outgrown their U20 league, which isn't very good, um, quite frankly. The, the MHL, I would rank pretty low in terms of the quality it's good when you see a guy that produces there, but there's, there's a lot, there's, there is a large disparity between teams there. Um, and so it's not my favorite to watch. And that actually will get me to an, our next question soon as well. But, but yeah, I told you I was going to go long on this question from John, because I think it really is uh, a lot of fun to talk about, but, but I, I think, you know, getting back to that point about Russia, you know, when we saw Vasily Podkolzin last year, he's only getting, you know, four minutes a game or three minutes a game. So there, there needs to be, some flexibility for those players a little bit more where there has to, you know, they, they can play in the VHL, which is like the minor leagues of the KHL. And again, not a, not a tremendous level of hockey. Um, so, you know, there has to be somewhere between the U 20, 
there, there needs to be improvement in, 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 in elevating U20 players. But in the KHL, it is the second best league in the world. And so as a result, it's hard for those players to play. And those are teams that are, you know, they're not focused on developing players as much as they are winning hockey games. And so when you have that, when you're focused solely on winning and you lose the development, I think that that's where things get tricky. So that's why, you know, I'm a little bit down on the Russian system now, but there's no question there. Look at what they're doing with their goaltending. Look at what they're doing. You know, some of the best players in the NHL remain Russian. I think we could have even more in the NHL in years to come. But there are players that I think could benefit from alternative development routes there uh, as opposed to playing within that stringent system that, that leads to the KHL and might lead to a dead end for some players. John also asked about teams, and I think, you know, everybody probably knows I worked at the NTDP. I have a lot of respect for what they do. I think that they have been, you know, kind of the gold standard of player development at the elite level, at the U18 level, um, and making better players and and their whole philosophy of having those guys challenging the elite level talent of the U.S. to play college teams at, at age 17, to play in the USHL at 16. Um, it's, it is a difficult thing to do and it has been a tried and true method and it's why the nhl is is providing you know financial support for such a such a thing and why they provides financial support to all leagues that feed them um you know i think when you're looking at individual teams how do you not talk about the london knights in terms of you know the number of players that they've had they obviously get the guys that they want and then they help them develop and they put them in an environment where they're around elite players they're getting nhl level coaching um and they they have to play a certain way in order to make make some headway there and we've seen so many guys come through that program and get better um, so you have to give them a lot of credit. It's not just that they get the best players. They also develop them when they get there. Uh, you know, I think as I talked about for Lunda in, in Sweden is probably one of the best developmental organizations in the world. Um, and I, you know, they, they give players an opportunity to, to, to climb the ladder and play alongside elite players throughout the years. And, you know, you just look at the, the number of guys that have come through that program in the last couple of years and, and certainly historically, and that's one of the best, you know, in Finland, you've got uh, Carpat, you've got Jokeri, although now they're in the KHL system, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, and you've got, uh, you know, HIFK and, 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 and TPS Turku and like, you know, they have so many places where they have really started developing talent um, at a, at a really regular rate. And so those are some of the teams there, you know, in terms of college, I think it's hard to not look at, at teams like North Dakota uh, with the number of players that they've they've managed to send to the National Hockey League, Boston College is another one. Jerry York continues to churn out pro talent at that school, makes them better when they get there. Um, has good coaches and good support. Obviously, Michigan is is right there. They've they've created a and Michigan leads the way in terms of NHL players uh, in in college hockey and certainly in the draft. Um, you know, we just saw it last year for the top five picks going to Michigan. Um, so yeah, it's just a, it's a remarkable thing that they've, they've built over the years and, you know, for, for Red Berenson to leave and Mel Pearson to come in and there be next to no drop off and actually improvement in the program. Um, that's pretty impressive to see. And so that's a very consistent one. You know, BU obviously has had, had a lot of elite players over the years, um, Denver. So there, there are certainly plenty of teams that, that do a great job developing talent there. You know, in the USHL, the Chicago Steel has been the En Vogue team, and I think it's for good reason. They have they have created an environment where elite players can flourish, like Owen Power, Brendan Brisson, Adam Fantilli there right now. Um, it's a, They've created an environment that, you know, they want players to be there and to play there and to, uh, you know, to, to, to enjoy their time there in addition to getting better. And they've, they've provided them the resources, and that's really the thing, you know, um, having the resources in junior hockey to supercharge development is really difficult. It's expensive. It, it is not easy to do. Um, it requires great coaching. It requires, you know, that you look at the steel they have, you know, they, they work with, uh, um, you know, a, a Stride Envy and they've worked with Daryl Belfry and they've, they've worked with a lot of skill coaches and, you know, they, they provide those extra steps and those extra things for those players to get better. Uh, another USHL team that I think has done a really nice job of developing pro and college players is the Muskegon Lumberjacks. They've, they've created a bit of a Russian pipeline there. Um, you know, Andre Svechnikov played there as a 16-year-old and, and did, did outstandingly. Um, you know, they were supposed to have Ivan Roshnashenko, who will be one of the top picks in this year's draft. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. 
uh, but Daniil Gushin and, and others where they've, they've allowed players to really flourish there um, and create players that, that have a chance to, to move on to the next levels and be really good. And, you know, there, there are plenty others that we can go Halifax and the QMJHL Kelowna and, and, uh, in the dub, I mean, you know, there there are just so many different things, but it all comes in cycles. You know, you, it depends on the players that you get, depends on the draft picks, the trades, all those different things. Those are all part of, you know, what makes a great developmental system. But that was a long answer on one question, and I have many more to get to, but I will make them much briefer than that last one. Um, but thank you, John, for the great question and give me a chance to to hop up here and talk about player development, which... Um, in terms of prospect coverage, watching a player develop and seeing the steps that they take is by far the most fun part of the job for me. Um, and, and I think, you know, there are a lot of great development stories that unfold every single season. And what you learn over that course is not everyone develops the same way. Development is not linear. You have to be patient with it. You have to allow players to make mistakes and, and to take steps back before they can take the ultimate step forward. So player development questions, always going to get a long answer from me. I uh, really appreciate that one, John. All right, and now another development question. This one comes from Prashant Iyer. And Prashant, thank you for this one. Can you discuss the pros, cons, and pros and cons of different development pathways, the USNTDP slash USHL to NCAA versus CHL versus Europe? And yeah, I mean, like this is another thing that I've just really enjoyed talking about because the thing is, is there's no right answer. It's it's basically each player is so different and needs so many different things. And, and ultimately, it's on the player to kind of maximize their own development, right? So they have to make opportunities uh, for themselves. And wherever they play, there is only so much the team can do. They're going to give them the tools. They're going to give them the opportunity. And then the player kind of has to take it from there. But there are pros and cons to each, and I think that they're, you know, for each player, it's going to be a different story. I think in the in the Canadian Hockey League, I'm going to start there. Is is you know, I think that there there is really a desire, um, you know, to kind of push things and, and play a lot of games and, um, you know, play more of a pro style schedule. And then you also have the benefit of a lot of teams have high-end NHL draft picks or guys that will be high NHL draft picks on their rosters. And playing against, with and against talent level like that is is huge. And and I think that those leagues tend to have a little bit more higher-end skill and, and, and challenge you in different ways than, say, you might see at, at a lower level of junior hockey. But that's not to say that that lower level might not be the right place for player X or player Y. So I think that's a huge benefit. You know, I think one of the cons to the, to the CHL um, route is, you know, there's a little bit, because of the schedule, there's usually a lot more on the player to, you know, especially in the off season to really work on off ice training, getting physically stronger. Like all these teams, they do focus on that. They have strength and conditioning coaches. They put players through the paces. I just think the schedule, you have to manage that a little bit better. So it's harder for players to get bigger and stronger. And then also you're playing the maximum age level that you're playing against in that league is 20 years old. And so, you know, at 16, that's difficult at 17 becomes less. So at 18, if you're a top end player, you should be able to handle that pretty easily. And at 19, we'd expect for a certain level of player, a bit of dominance. And so the the level of challenge gets less and less as you get older. Um, I think it stays more consistent in the other levels because you're playing against older, stronger players. And that levels the playing field in a way that does not happen at the CHL level. Um, so I think that, you know, I should have started off by saying like all of these routes are proven. They have worked. And so if you are a player of a certain level, it should work for you as long as you're willing to put the work in. So I would say that those types of things that, you know, the, the age progression in the CHL is really where I start to see, you know, how much is this benefiting this player? I don't think you can stay in a level too long. I would want to see a player get better and better as the years go on. And I would want to see them be a dominant offensive player at age 19. Um, but, you know, the maximum age, you know, 2021 in, in that, in that there, it, you know, once you get to a certain level, you're not going to have as hard a time 
in that league. And, and then you start developing sometimes those habits that will work in junior but won't work in pro. So that's another thing that, that teams have to be cognizant of and players have to be cognizant of. When it comes to the European route, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the system in place, the ladder of development that they have is really great for moving on and moving up. The problem is if you're a player that's somewhere in between and you're playing U20 level in those leagues, those leagues to me are of a lesser quality than the USHL and the CHL. And so as a result, you know, you might have not the best in terms of competition and being challenged. Um, and then if you are a European player that does happen to make the pro team, the hope has to be that you're going to get enough ice time to make an impact and to actually progress. And so I think, you know, there's so much on the player. The good thing is, is that they can send a player back to the U20 level. They can loan them out to the Elsvenskan second division. They can loan them out to the third division. You know, they there are different paths. There's more flexibility there to try and challenge a player. So that's another good thing. So it's not the end-all be-all if a player just ends up on the U20 team that he's not going to continue to progress. We, we've seen that those leagues can continue to develop players, but you would want to see them step into the pro system before they move on to the next level. And I think that's what those teams want too in Europe. They want those players to, to move on to the pro system and all of a sudden be better, you know, like be able to handle that and compete and help their pro teams. So it benefits everybody that way. But that there, the thing that I really like about the European model is there is a clear ladder of development. There is a clear system in place that allows a player to move kind of freely between those levels and, and, and put, be put in the best position at whatever time, whatever that player needs at that time, they're going to be in the right place to, to get that, you know, the, either the, being more challenged at the pros, gaining more confidence at U20, um, you know, getting more ice time at the at the second division level. I like that about that in terms of that development pathway. And then the NCAA, uh, USHL, NTDP route, obviously the one that I'm most familiar with, the one that I follow the closest. Um, you know, I think the benefit of that one is, is the USHL is a great step between youth hockey and college hockey because it is a difficult league. It is a well-coached league. It is a, um, uh, you, you are dealing with often players that are a bit on the older side. So if you are that 17-year-old and you're playing against 18 to 19-year-old heavy teams, that does challenge you in a way that you might not see at, at some of the other levels. I think that the defensive discipline, the goaltending, all of those things have, have looked really good in the USHL these last couple of years. So there is a there is a step. Also, you know, I think the one thing, that I mentioned before is, you know, the USHL is not going to have as many elite level draft picks as often, not all the time, but often uh, as like the OHL or the WHL, for instance, whereas there's a little bit more of a higher end skill level in there. But that's, that's starting to shift more now. We're not seeing that quite, that gap is, is starting to narrow a bit more as you've seen with the level of high high end draft picks that have come through the USHL in these last couple of years, and especially in the 20, uh, 2019 or 2020 21 season, that was definitely different. So um, there was just a lot of high end talent still in the league. Guys that had to come back from college, all all sorts of different things. But that's good. And then what I think the NCAA, the biggest benefit to the NCAA is the time for strength training, the time for practice and skill development. You know, you're playing two to three times a week max, um, and you're getting elite level everything. The thing about being a Division One athlete is that those schools have the resources from the other sports like football and basketball that are able to provide super high-end strength and conditioning coaches, weight training, uh, athletic trainers. You are getting the, you're getting as close as you will get to the NHL in the NCAA. Um, in terms of the exterior benefits. That's one of the things that I think really is a separating factor is those those elite level training opportunities with especially when it comes to strength and nutrition, all of that is managed for you. Um, it's pretty it's pretty incredible what they're able to provide. You know, just walking through the Cole Center at Wisconsin, which is a place that I, I go to frequently, and I see their their weight facility right there in the Cole Center, 
and you see you know the basketball team working out you see the the women's basketball team working out and then the hockey players are using those same things and they're getting those same opportunities to to better themselves physically um and and you see that you know you see players come through programs and they they physically change same thing at the national team development program which has one of the most tried and true strength and conditioning programs. I the 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 craziest thing for me every single time I was there was watching a player come in at 16 years old and leave as a, a behemoth, uh, you know, at 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 17. And that's just a two-year progression. And so they supercharge that development that way. In terms of on ice, the big thing about the NCAA that that really helps and and this is true of the NTDP because they always play up a level essentially. Um, is playing against older, stronger, faster players is, is, is where not having the elite level talent that maybe some of the CHL teams have really kind of evens out. And so you're playing a much more NHL style game at the collegiate level because it's more physical. It is often, um, uh, more difficult to move around. You know, I was just watching, Michigan and Minnesota State this last weekend at the icebreaker and Minnesota State had several players that were 25 years old on their roster um, and very few players that were below the age of 20. Um, And so that is how Minnesota State competes at the collegiate level to make sure that they're evening the gap when they're playing a team like Michigan that has seven first round draft picks on it. Um, So that is a challenge that it comes up, you know, but I think that the con that some will say is like, you know, not enough games, um, you know, if you don't reach the postseason or if you're bounced early, you know, you could end up playing 30 games in a season. The The schedule doesn't really mimic the NHL schedule in any meaningful way. Whether that matters or not, it's not really clear, but that's another great question. Um, and I think that it, it, again, I'll say it, every player is different. Every path is different. Players need to make the decisions that they feel is best for them. And oftentimes, i found, you know, players, there, there are certainly players that have made the wrong decision, but oftentimes they do make the right one and they make the most of the path that they choose. So great question. Thanks very much, Prashant. All right. This next one comes from Ryan. And he asks, what has changed at Michigan that led to so many high-profile prospects choosing to go there? Good question, Ryan. I think, you know, the thing that we forget about Michigan is that they've, pretty much always had high-end prospects. There's just a much higher level <laughs> this year. Um, and, and I think that it comes in a, in a couple of different ways. And and so obviously, you know, you think about it over the years, the guys they've had come through, Dylan Larkin, Zach Wierenski, Quinn Hughes, um, you know, Zach Hyman, even before that, uh, Carl Hagelin. You know, they, they've, they've always had NHL level talent. There's never really been a huge drop off. I do think in the later years of Red Berenson, the quality of the program dipped a little bit. You know, they started missing the NCAA tournament. Um, that did change. But then you get this groundswell, and now it's creating uh, kind of a, a Michigan getting whoever they want. It's not so much recruiting as reloading anymore. Um, part of that is I think a lot of people want to play for Mel Pearson. I think he's a he's a personable guy. He's he's you know really good recruiter. He was an elite level recruiter when he was an assistant at Michigan, so he knows the program inside and out. Um, you know I think that there is a a they they made such great hires and their assistant coaches as well. Um, Bill McCalt is has been there for a while now. He's a former Wolverine. You know, coached in the USHL. Really good recruiter. They now have Brandon Arado, who is in his first year there, but he has been a skill skill development coach for the elite NHL players. You know, he works with a lot of those guys that I just mentioned um, where he spends time with them. And, you know, he's working with Jack and Quinn Hughes. He's working with uh, Wierenski, you know, so that helps sell the program as well. Having a guy like Brandon Arado, who has, has a proven track record of working with the best of the best. You know, they also had, um, uh, you know, they've, they've had really good assistance in the past. Brian Weidman moved on. He's, he's now at uh, Edmonton. Um, and, and then, you know, you've, you've got a lot of just quality recruiting that's happening there. And now the program is kind of selling itself in a way too, because, well, I want to go play where Owen Power played. I want to play where Quinn Hughes played. I want to play where Luke Hughes played. I want to, you know, those players are getting there. And now you look at Michigan continues to recruit. So not just this year, they will also have next year, Adam Fantilli, who very easily could be a top three pick in the 2023 draft. He's lighting it up at the US, USHL right now. He has been a, a highly sought after 
talent. And I, I think that they are just continuing to find guys that want to be Wolverines. And because they're seeing these elite level players go there and that's, you know, that's pretty, pretty impressive. And I also just didn't want to, I don't want to miss this. Chris Mayotte was also there as an assistant coach and what had a big hand in, in recruitment as well. He helped win a national title at uh, Providence as an assistant and, and has worked with the U S junior teams and now is at Colorado college building that program. So, um, you know, I think that you have to give a lot of credit to the coaching staff, but then you also have to give credit to the guys that have come in and, and they, they help sell the school now. Um, and so I think Michigan is well set up for the next three to four years in terms of the recruiting classes that they're bringing in guys that will be there for a few extra years that won't immediately go to the NHL. But then there is also going to be that, you know, do they run into that where they start losing players so rapidly that they're not able to, um, you know, replace them adequately. And then all of a sudden you got a, a tough situation there. Um, this one comes from Jack Manning. It's another Michigan related question. Michigan is as stacked a team as it gets in NCAA hockey. Does the abundance of talent make it more difficult to objectively assess how ready those players are to take the next step? Really good question by Jack. And this is a question that I had about the Chicago Steel over the last two years. It's like, are there just so many good players that we're not really sure who the best ones are? And you know what? Honestly, I I don't think you can do that. I think certainly if you're if you're just judging by statistics. If you're just looking at the numbers and you're like, wow, this guy has an incredible number of, of points here. Is that because of him or because of who he's playing with? That all comes out when you're watching them. It all comes out and looking at some of the underlying numbers as well. Um, you know, like how, how much of the chances is this player generating on his own? How much is it because of his line? Um, it, it, I think in the end, you want to see good players play with elite players. How do they, how do they, react to playing with you know like for instance Mackie Samuskevich a first round pick of the Florida Panthers is playing with Maddie Beneers and Ken Johnson I want to see how he handles playing with two players that are, are that good um, you know can he keep up with them can he make that line better can he help push that line forward um, and so that those are the types of things that I look at, at objectively trying to objectively assess them the other thing too is I think that the college environment and we saw this this weekend at the icebreaker that really challenges those players. It doesn't matter how good you are sometimes in the in college hockey. It matters how do you you know how hard can you work? Can you find ways through uh, the teeth of a defense that just doesn't give you any room to skate like Minnesota State did? And Michigan found a way. Their elite players did find a way. Thomas Bordalo made two great plays um, to help them get back in that game, scoring the tying goal and then assisting on the game winner by Brendan Brisson. Brisson has NHL caliber one timer. You know Owen Power is 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 stepping forward. Luke Hughes, you know, I thought we saw him mature over two games in that in that tournament and seeing him step forward. So you do have to look at each player individually. You have to understand the context of them playing with elite level talent, but you don't, you know, it doesn't change the job. It doesn't change the job. You, you look at each player individually. You try to be as objective as you possibly can. I think Michigan is an outstanding program, and I think they're going to win a lot of hockey games this year, but it's not always going to be a cakewalk. And, and so... That's what I'm looking forward to seeing is how do other teams challenge them? And I'm, I'm watching other players as they're playing against Michigan as well. You know, seeing Nathan Smith, I thought he was excellent against Michigan. He looked like a pro out there and he, for Minnesota State. He's a Winnipeg Jets draft pick. You know, that's a guy that I have a lot of time for and I'm really excited to see. And I, I have even more time for him after watching how he competed against Michigan. All right, the next question comes from Eric Vigo. There have been more than a few players who are playing an extra year in the USHL after their draft year before heading to college, even before seeing... COVID graduate players, uh, what do you think of that path and any insights from NHL sources on it? Okay, so the college hockey landscape right now is a little bit in flux because of the players that have been given an extra year of eligibility for COVID reasons. You know, it, it pushed a few guys back. There were others that this was always part of the plan. So you look at like a guy like Jackson Blake, who was drafted by the Carolina Hurricanes played mostly in high school last season, then played for the Chicago Steel. He's now playing for the Chicago Steel for the rest of the year. That was always part of the plan for him before going to North Dakota. He needed that extra year. Um, you know, some guys are more than willing to take that extra year. And then as far as what NHL teams think about it, I think the USHL, there is a lot more faith overall in the league to continue aiding the development of players 
beyond their draft season. And we've seen a lot more guys that had draft years, you know, were after their draft year are back in the USHL. Look at a guy like Jackson Hallam of a Vegas Golden Knights pick. He's one of the top players in the USHL this year. That is very good for his development. The opportunity to be a top player in a league. And Jackson Blake, by the way, is, is also among the leading scorers in, in the USHL. So these are guys that are having an opportunity to be the man at a level that's really difficult. Uh, you know, the USHL is a tough league to score in. And to see those guys succeed, that's going to be great news for their college hockey programs. And it's great news for their NHL teams, too, because it, they know usually those guys that are picked. This usually happens more with guys that are picked kind of like in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth round. But, you know, you look at uh, Mason Laurie last season um, with, with the Green Bay Gamblers and, and you know, the, 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 the job that he did, uh, Boston Bruins draft pick. You know, he became the defenseman, the, the top scoring defenseman in the league. You know, so that's a great step for him. And then he goes right into Ohio State and he can be an everyday player for them. Um, think about guys like Zach Jones as well, uh, who who wasn't drafted initially, played an extra year in the USHL, does get drafted, goes on and becomes an All-American and, and signs after two seasons of college hockey. So uh, I think that every player's timeline is going to be different, but the opportunity to play at a level where they can succeed and, and play at their what they should be at the next level in college, like Jackson Blake should be a top six forward at the next level. Jackson Hallam very well could be as well. He's he's committed to go to Michigan. I mean, I don't know if there are enough pucks to go around there, but you know that's another guy where you know you want to see them get there. And yeah, so I think it's a really good thing overall. And I think NHL teams are just fine with it because the USHL has proven that this is an area where players are going to continue to develop. Uh, the next question actually comes from email. Uh, as we shift a little bit here into some uh, NHL-related questions. And uh, this one comes from Daryl Whiteley. Daryl asks, The lottery set, was set up to keep teams from ta tanking by removing the guarantee of getting at the top pick. Whoever has the worst record in 2022 has a better chance of not getting Shane Wright than, get, than of getting him. But with the new draft lottery rules, a team can't drop more than two places. Whoever finishes last is guaranteed a top three pick. So... As stacked as the top of 2022 is looking, could this be the season we see the return of an all-out tanking race between teams like Arizona and Buffalo? Well, Daryl, good question. And I think it looks like the Sabres are trying not to tank, which is good. It's good to see them trying to compete and trying to take a next step as an organization. I think Don Granado is going to be uh, a real great coach for them. I don't think that they're going to do that well. But um, but I think that you know for teams that are that are in dire straits. I mean, you look at Arizona, I think it's a prime example. There's really not, not a secret as to what's going on there. They are not a team built to win right now. They're not a team built to win in a few years. Um, they're going to have tough times. And I think that if they can get a top three pick in either of the next two drafts, and I would put a higher emphasis on next year's draft, the 2023 NHL draft where you would, you know, your, your worst case scenario might be getting like an Adam Fantilli, uh, who is an exceptional player in the USHL right now, but you think there's Connor Bedard, there's Matt Vamichkov who are, uh, you know, spectacular players having incredible seasons. And then obviously if you can get Shane Wright this year, then you're really happy because now you got your number one center for years to come the face of your franchise. It's a, it's a different thing. So, but yeah, but I mean, basically, you know, the way things are, I think that there's going to be definite tanking um, over the next two seasons. Teams, as they understand where they're at, um, it, you know, it's it's the players don't tank, right? Like the players aren't actively trying to lose games. They don't care if their team gets the first overall pick. They're just trying to make a living and get through a season. And, and it's a lot more fun to do that when you're winning. But general managers, by the, you know, by the way that they build teams, they will probably never say it. They probably wouldn't want to, their players to feel this way, but they tank. They do. They make decisions. They, they, they hamper their rosters. They load up on veteran contracts that they don't need, you know, like things, things that are going to be easy to offload. Um, and then I, I think the thing is you can tank, but you have to do it in such a way that the players on your current team that will be part of the solution going forward don't suddenly become part of this culture. I think that's part of what has happened in Buffalo is that they tanked and tanked and tanked and not really on per you know, 
when they went to that first rebuild, Darcy Regeer started ch ch trading away, you know, Thomas Vanek, Jason Pominville, uh, Ryan Miller. It was just, you know, the sign like, hey, we're, we are shedding everybody and we are moving in a different direction. But I don't, and now they're on their, you know, their third general manager since then and multiple head coaches. And there's never really been a path forward. So I think, you know, I look at Arizona and I see a team that is tanking. Um, and I see a team that also has a vision for the future. I see a team that, you know, Dylan Gunther had a phenomenal preseason for them and a great rookie tournament. They sent him right back to junior because they know it's not time. And that's the best move they could have possibly made for that young player because he is going to be a very good WHL player this year. He's going to make a lot of plays, but he's where he needs to be. And that's that's a great thing for a team to do. I also think the the Coyotes have really invested in their scouting staff. They've they've put a lot into that, bringing in guys like Ryan Jankowski and Daryl Plandowski, and um, you know they've they've changed their scouting staff up a bit. And that was always a strength of Bill Armstrong's as an assistant general manager at the St. Louis Blues. So, um, yeah, I mean, basically, tanking is going to continue to exist, but it's going to exist in a way that hopefully is is you know. Obviously not permanent like some of these other teams like, you know, the Sabres are still trying to figure out if if they are or if they aren't. And, uh, yeah, it looks like at least their players are playing like they aren't. All right, our next question comes from Lucas Pincari. With a handful of A-listed guys and a number of B-listed talent in Central Scouting's grades, should we be talking more about the 2004 crop at the USNTDP? Granted, a 2001 crop doesn't grow on trees, but I feel like the pandemic campaign curtailed some of the hype around them. And you know what, Lucas, I think you're right, because this is a really good team. It's a good birth year for the U.S. You're right, it's not quite as good as the 2001 uh, or the 97, but those are two generational classes and, and really will have a huge impact on USA going forward. But the current national under-18 team um, is you know, has been very good so far this season. They only have two losses. Uh, they've actually played four games against division one NCAA schools, and they've won three of those games. That includes a three, nothing win over Michigan state four, three over Notre Dame two one over Michigan tech. They had a five, three loss Northern Michigan. Unfortunately, some of those guys that you, you know, have gotten hurt on this team, 2023 draft eligible. Charlie Stramel was lost before the, the season. Um, he, he needed to have surgery. He was going to be a candidate for the World Junior team. Unfortunately, won't be available for that. Um, so that is too bad. Uh, but they also had a couple of other injuries pop up in these last couple of games. And uh, Rutger McGroarty, who's had a really good season, has a potential to be a first-round draft pick this year, uh, recently committed to the University of Michigan. Um, he is out with, I believe, a broken hand Um uh, so that is unfortunate for him. He's going to be out for a bit. That was sustained in the loss to Northern Michigan. Cruz Lucius, another guy, kind of maybe a two, second, third round pick, uh, brother of Chaz Lucius, who went in the first round to Winnipeg. He's going to be out for some time as well with a fracture. So um, they're, they've been dealing with injuries and things like that. But the good news is, is that they, they have continued to play extremely well. And there's a lot of high-end draft talent on this roster. I think Logan Cooley has a real opportunity to be a, a top-five pick in this upcoming draft. He's off to a really good start this season. Um, you know, he's he's averaging almost 1.3 points per game, um, and you know he's only appeared in seven games so far. But that's a guy that I think they're going to really um, like having, uh, and a guy that I think they're really excited about. Um, as I mentioned, McGrory unfortunately injured, but off to a great start this season. Ten points through eight games. Um, you know, doing really well. And then they have all these other guys too. J Isaac Howard is, is, is an outstanding young player guy. I have a lot, you know, I'm a little bit higher on him than I think most of the, the, you know, public lists are, but I think that he's got such creativity and playmaking skill and his skating ability is, is, is real high end. He generates a ton of chances that way. Frank Nazer, uh, very, he's undersized, but extremely skilled. And just, I, I really enjoy watching him play he darts around the ice real well. Cutter Gauthier, Jimmy Snuggerud, uh, Merrick Hayduke. I mean, these are guys that are putting up good numbers this year and have a good chance to be drafted. I like the decor quite a bit. Seamus Casey's been producing. Um, Lane Hudson, who is, uh, we've talked about in this podcast before, you know, about five foot eight and, uh, you know, just incredibly darty and, and, and dynamic and just love the way that he plays the game. You know, Ryan Chesley's numbers have been down, but I think you talk to a lot of scouts and that's a guy that they have a lot of faith in as, as a, as a top end prospect, a first round potential candidate as a defenseman. But as, uh, as Lucas mentioned, you know, there were you know, the, the uh, NHL central scouting watch list came out last week. And so there are a lot of 
uh, you know, it's, it's always good to get a look at that early. Um, you know, there are always some players on there that either aren't on there or are on there that are a bit of a surprise and, you know, or where, which players are considered a players and B players. Um, you know, I didn't have a ton of quibbles with the list. You know, I think, uh, Elias Salomonson, who is, uh, one of the top Swedish defensemen was a B rated prospect. That's maybe one that I would have quibbled with a bit, but, um, can certainly understand, you know, he's, he's, he's a pretty raw player, but, but interesting, uh, nonetheless. So yeah, but that's, uh, that's a good question from, from Lucas. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to keep, be keeping a close eye on that, uh, central scouting watch list on some of those players. And, and really, I do have to say, thanks a lot to the central scouting for the work that they do, because it does help people like me do the public list, you know, to, to, to kind of see who's on the radar. If they're, they're always going to be guys on there that I didn't anticipate. And it just allows you the opportunity to go and do the, some extra research, go in and, and try and get a little bit more information about players. And sometimes you're going to agree with what they said. And sometimes you're not going to agree at all. But it's really valuable uh, to have kind of a you know a baseline list to go off of, and that's what I think really central scouting uh, does, and, and and I'm appreciative of that because that's uh, it's it's not easy work, but the, it's often thankless. But we do appreciate what they do for the game, and and the whole purpose of central scouting's list is to kind of generate that draft buzz and and help uh, help help the public just as much as it is to help the NHL teams know who's out there. All right, our next question is a little off the beaten path, but I like it a lot. It comes from Tommy Enroth. What do you think of Theo Rochette's hot start in the QMJHL? Do you think he has a chance to make Canada's World Junior Team or Switzerland's? So Theo Rochette is a really interesting case. He was an exceptional young player um, who really burst onto the scene as uh, at the 2018 Holinka Gretzky Cup. He was playing for Canada or playing for Switzerland because he's a dual Canadian Swiss citizen. So he was playing for Switzerland um, and was one of their best players. He only ended up having two assists, but Switzerland has been, you know, they, they have not had good teams lately. They, they have not had enough skill. Um, you know, Theo played most of his young career in Switzerland. You know, he's in that, in the Switzerland national program. So he goes to the QMJHL and has an outstanding rookie season. And with with Shakutami, and he he put up 43 points in 59 games. He was a guy that I had listed as a potential first round pick going into that 2020 draft. He goes undrafted. He goes undrafted in 2021, and now he has 13 points in seven games. So he's off to a good start. the The thing is, is you know, we always have to look, and and this goes back to something that I talked about earlier. When you're talking about junior players, when they turn 19 there's a certain level of expectation that we have for what they should be able to do in a league. And a player of Theo Rochette's skill level should be a more dominant player at age 19. He has been so far. Now I haven't dug in on the video on him yet because you know, he, he's kind of a guy that is, is, is off the radar a bit, but it's an interesting point from Tommy because no, I don't think he has a chance to make Canada's team, but he's still eligible to play for Switzerland. As far as I know, unless he, Unless he is, uh, you know, established that citizenship in Canada, and he he is only going to play for Canada, there are some really weird rules there. I wonder if he could get an exemption, but it, it, it's strange nonetheless. So Rochette actually in that 2018-19 season played for Canada in the World Under 17 Hockey Challenge. That is not a double IHF sanctioned event in that it does not do anything to your eligibility to play for another country. So he's never played an IIHF event for either country. Now, the fact that he hasn't played for an under-18 team for Switzerland or their U-20 team last year says to me that it's very unlikely that he's going to be in the mix to play for Team Switzerland. So that would be unfortunate. And it's a decision, you know, these players have to make these decisions over time. You know, do I want to play for, you know, which country do I play for if I'm a dual citizen? And, And I have always said, what is the country that you feel like you're from? What is, what is home to you? What is the country? Don't go based off of how it's going to help you as a player. Go based off of which country am I most tied to? Like for Alex Galchenyuk, who grew up all over the world, but was born in the U.S., he felt most connected to the U.S. And he wanted to play for Team USA. And Team Russia wanted him too, but he wanted to play for Team USA. Um, and, 
you know, there, there have been all sorts of different cases, but I think Theo Rochette is a real interesting one because boy, did he ever drop off as a prospect and, and he's had good seasons. He's had a really nice QMJHL career, had 30 points in 32 games for the Quebec Remparts. He's wearing the C for the Remparts this season. Um, you know, so he's a good QMJHL player and I think he would help, you know, he, he would certainly help Switzerland should be checking on his eligibility right now. And, and making sure, like, could we get him back? Because he has a Swiss passport. He has the ability to, to play for Team Switzerland. As far as I know, the IHF would have to ultimately rule on that. But, you know, the fact that he hasn't already, that's something that I wonder about. But he could, they, they need bodies on their U20 team. It has been a, a very down couple of years. They just don't have the skill level that, that, that they've had in other years. And they don't have guys like Nico Heischer to cover that up uh, in the event that, uh, you know, that that's something that they can do. So very interesting question, Tommy. I like that. It's an in the weeds prospect question. So if you are a huge prospect nerd, and I know Tommy is, and thank you for being one, Tommy. If you are a huge prospect nerd like me, I love questions like that. I will always answer questions like that on this podcast because I think there are a lot of prospect nerds out there that listen to it. So thank you very much. All right, now we get to the frivolous questions part because I called for questions. And as I often do, I'll throw in something silly and say, you know, ask me about the meaning of life or something like that. But this one is actually kind of hockey related. Sean Leahy asks, what are the best food cities for scouts? Go. Uh, well, I don't consider myself a scout. I consider myself a writer. But if I am both a writer and a scout, that's two of the best eating groups that you could possibly want to be in because there are people that are going to find you some great places. Actually, one of my favorite places is a place that I live for a little bit, Ann Arbor. I think Ann Arbor is one of the more underrated food towns um, in, in college athletics in, in, in the country. They have such a variety of restaurants, every single kind of food that you would want to eat. That's one of the benefits of being in a college town. They have, you know, the, the tourist trap, but also it's worth it. Zingerman's Deli, just outstanding. Um, you know, I was just up in Duluth and Duluth Grill, outstanding place. If you want the best banana cream pie you've ever had, Duluth Grill, that's that's where it's at. Um but yeah, I mean, like though there are a lot of good places, and you know, I end up in Canada a lot. And obviously, you know, for me, anytime I get a chance to go to Vancouver is like a huge thrill for me. Um, and I, I'm big on the seafood. I love what they have there. Uh, so you know, you usually, but then you kind of get into these small towns. I, I had a great couple of meals in St. John, Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Um, so that's another place where I'd say, yeah, that's good. So, but there are so many guys that travel so much more than me and I'm always leaning on them. And I have a few scouts that just give me absolute dynamite recommendations for places to go eat. And, um, I always appreciate that, but I, I, I seriously, Ann Arbor, Michigan folks, not a bad spot. If you want to have just like any type of food you can imagine. And if you want one of the best deli experiences ever, Zingerman's hard to beat. This next one comes from Sportsology. What type of cheese do you like on a Philly cheesesteak? This feels like a trick question or a trap question. Like you're getting, you want to get me to say something embarrassing, but I won't do it. Sportsology, AKA Russ Cohen. I won't do it. Provolone is uh, the only kind of cheese that I like on a Philly cheesesteak. Um, you know, that is, that's, that's where it's at. You gotta get provolone on the Philly cheesesteak. Um, I actually am a huge fan of chicken fillies and one of my favorite places for Philly cheesesteak is actually in Ann Arbor. Uh, Mr. Spots, shout out to Mr. Spots, best hot sauce on the planet. Um, they have a chicken Philly there that is just lights out and then you get waffle fries too. And it's just like, come on, what, what am I doing here? This is going to destroy my heart, but I don't care. Uh, but yeah, love a good Philly cheesesteak. Um, definitely got to go with provolone. And then this last question comes from my my old friend Matt Verdoni from Iowa State. When you eat at Olive Garden, do you eat get red or white sauce? Oh, don'ts. This is uh, this is a tough question because um, I don't eat at Olive Garden. And Olive Garden, if you ever want to sponsor this podcast, I really apologize. Olive Garden is is certainly the home to uh, affordable team meals that we would get on the road uh, with Iowa State back in the day. So. Um, I tend to stick with the breadsticks and the salad. And then, uh, if I have to, if I'm going pasta, I am going to go red just cause I don't trust the white sauce. So uh, I just don't trust it, but either way, uh, yeah, eat wherever you like. This isn't supposed to be a slam on Olive Garden. I just don't tend to, to go there very often. Cause I think I ate it too much on the road when I was with, with the guys at Iowa state, um, when we would get our team meals and, but man, those, those salads and breadsticks, I tell you. They, 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 and since I wasn't a player, it didn't even matter. 
so I could eat whatever I wanted. Those guys were, were going with the plain pasta sometimes. So, uh, but anyway, uh, it's it's a red sauce situation for me, Don'ts, uh, which you probably, well, you wouldn't remember that, but yeah. So, but yeah, a good Italian boy like yourself, I'm sure uh, that 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 does you well. All right, so that's gonna do it for today's episode. Those are all the questions. You guys had great questions. I am super excited for a couple of things coming up that I wanted to let you know about. Number one, I've got a big story coming up on Hockey Sense that is very personal, uh, but also a story that I think the hockey world needs to know more about. You're going to read this week. Um, if you read it before the end of this week, uh, which is the, I'm recording this on October 20th. So you got a few days. Um, I'm writing a story about the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders and their return from a season where they, they had no hockey. Um, it wasn't pandemic related, although that certainly contributed. It was not pandemic related. Uh, you will find out why um, and what happened to the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders and why this is uh, going to be a very special season for them. Uh, really one of the great comeback stories of the college hockey season that I'm sure you haven't heard very much about. But go over to Hockey Sense. That will be a free piece. Um, I believe it'll drop on Friday, uh, but you will get to learn about that. And I, I, you know, I live in the area. Cedar Rapids is the USHL team that I will often go to the the games the most because it, for a couple of reasons, they're the closest, but also they always give everybody, they play a really tough game. Um, and, and it gives you a lot of insight into players and, and how they battle through adversity. And, and that's something that the Rough Riders always do, but a really remarkable comeback story by that franchise um, and the city of Cedar Rapids, which went through um, one of the most challenging years, uh, uh, an entire city, could face. And I'm looking forward to bringing that story to you. Also next week on the podcast, we will have a hockey insider on here. It is somebody inside the game, somebody that has coached at multiple levels and will have great insight on all these things like development and building a program and working in the NHL and working in international hockey. Todd Woodcroft, head coach of the University of Vermont, is confirmed for next week's podcast. He has so much insight into this game. Cannot wait to have that conversation with Todd and bring it to you right here. So make sure you check that out. And as always, please rate, review, subscribe, like, follow, share, whatever you got to do, whatever app you use. Make sure you're doing that. And please, please, please try to give us a rating and leave a written review as well. If you do leave a couple written reviews, I'm going to read a few on the podcast because, quite frankly, we need that support. It helps this thing grow. It allows it to get bigger and better, and it allows more listeners to come in. And then that means we get more good questions from people like the ones that you heard today. And then hopefully I provide decent answers. But thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of Talking Hockey Sense. We've got so much more coming for you. Don't forget to go over to Hockey Sense at hockeysense.substack.com. That is where you will find that story on Friday about the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders and get a lot more content as well. And if you're there, uh, go ahead and subscribe, why don't you? I'd appreciate it. Thanks for all your support, everybody. Really excited to get rolling over at Daily Faceoff as well. But now it's time for me to head out and get back to work. This was too much fun. Thanks for all the great questions, everybody. We'll see you next week. I'm Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense. Catch you next time.